It could be a game changer for the next generation of astronauts set to return to the moon in just four years. NASA says it found water molecules on a sunlit area of the lunar surface right there in Clavius Crater. In October of 2020, NASA scientists announced that they'd found water on the sunlit surface of the moon. Scientists had already discovered ice at the polar caps, but water spread across the rest of the moon would make it much easier for astronauts to live and work there. Now, before you get your hopes up, what NASA actually found was the equivalent of about a small bottle's worth of water. So only roughly 350 mils or 12 ounces. Yeah, yeah. So you're not going swimming or ice skating in this, in this repository <laughs> of water that they found on the moon. That's astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson on NBC's Today Show explaining the importance of this finding. Now, NASA said that there's about 100 times the amount of water in the Sahara Desert as there is in what they found on the moon's surface. So if you're an astronaut anywhere in the solar system and you need water, NASA has to pay $10,000 for one of these, you know, avion containers just for you to drink. (laughs) So why does this matter? And what impact will it have on our plans for the future of space travel and space exploration? Welcome to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson and I'm Andrew Moon. And today on the show, we're exploring why finding such a small amount of water on the moon is such a big deal. And we'll look into the impact lunar natural resources can have on the trajectory of outer space exploration. by this point to start an episode of Moonshot with a grab from a SpaceX rocket launch. But bear with me a moment. That's the word we want to hear. Stage one propulsion is nominal. We all know that Elon Musk has visions of sending people to live and work on Mars. It's an ambitious goal that we've discussed at length before. But while Elon is full steam ahead on making that dream a reality... NASA is laser-focused on one goal, sending humans back to the moon by 2024. We've discussed the Artemis missions at length in the past, but something we didn't really talk about is NASA's plans to create a lunar outpost called Gateway. The Gateway is supposed to be a permanent base in orbit around the moon, similar to the International Space Station. Many different countries and private enterprises will contribute to the Gateway to create a place where astronauts can stop over or live while they explore the moon and beyond. And it turns out having somewhere to stop once you leave Earth is kind of important. And finding water in space helps a lot. Yeah, it's it's a cool thing. Um, you know, ice and, and water ice, either liquid or, or or frozen or, you know, any state, but H2O really... It, it, is a key. And when we talk about 
going further into space. The problem ultimately is the Earth holds us back, literally. Um, it is holding us back uh, through gravity uh, and the atmosphere. You know, obviously we need it to live, but it, that makes launching rockets harder. Uh, that's why rockets need so much fuel, is to uh, escape Earth's gravitational pull and, and the atmospheric drag. This is Brad Tucker, an astrophysicist at the Mount Stromlo Observatory in Canberra, who has a keen interest in space resources. You might remember Brad from our episode looking at mining asteroids. If not, we'll have a link for you in the show notes. When you talk about once you get into space, you don't really have those issues, especially around places like the moon, where there is very little gravity. There still is gravity. It's just a sixth of the Earth, and there's essentially no atmosphere. So if you can get to the moon and find a fuel source, you need a fraction of the fuel to leave as compared to the Earth. And here in space, the fuel that we can most easily identify is H2O, H2O being two hydrogen and oxygen. So yeah, that's good for humans, but really these are the components that we need for various rocket fuels. Uh, And so if you have the ingredients for rocket fuel, you can therefore make rocket fuel. So instead of having to bring your fuel up from Earth, because the more weight you add on Earth, the more fuel you need to leave Earth, then you get this vicious cycle. So uh, that means you can refuel uh, at the moon, have longer term staying there and go to other places. You know, just think about any traveling. An airplane doesn't carry its fuel for return journey back. Right. You know, they go to the airport and nearly all cases, there's a few exceptions. They refuel there and they carry back. Otherwise, they're carrying that extra weight. And this is what we're trying to to do in space instead of carrying the fuel with us, refueling in space. So having access to water on the moon could be a cheaper alternative to sending it there by rocket from Earth. But given we went to the moon more than 50 years ago, how come we don't already know how much water exists on the moon? Now, during the moon landings, NASA collected primarily a bunch of rocks, around 300 kilos or 660 pounds worth, and brought them back to Earth. It's these samples which have often been referred to and studied over and over to figure out the composition of the moon. The Soviets were also already onto something in the 1970s. They sent an unmanned lunar probe to the moon in 1976. It was called Luna 24, and the probe drilled down some two metres to collect samples. The Soviets found the samples contained about 0.1% water and published a paper on it in 1978, in the midst of the Cold War. So the findings were largely ignored. That is until the late Arlen Krotz published a paper in 2012 that referenced the findings. Now fast forward to 2020, when NASA discovered further evidence of water using its Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, or SOFIA for short. SOFIA is essentially a 747 that's been kitted out with telescopes and sensors, allowing NASA to fly the equipment into the stratosphere and bypass a majority of the Earth's interference. The purpose of Sophia, uh, Sophia's mission, is to explore the infrared universe. This is Nassim Rangwala, the project scientist for NASA's Sophia mission. So it um, it is a, actually an aircraft, a Boeing 747, with almost a nine-foot uh, diameter uh, telescope on it. And uh, it uh, by flying um, high in the uh, stratosphere, so about up to 45,000 feet, 
uh, we are able to get above 99.9% uh, .9 of the water vapor in the Earth's atmosphere. That's blocking the infrared light uh, from space. Um, and so this allows us to study the universe in the infrared light. Sophia primarily studies stars and galaxies and black holes, you know, things that are located deep into space. The team had never considered studying the moon. That is until a research proposal came up suggesting exactly that. And then we got this excellent idea from our uh, lunar community, a lunar scientist, um, Casey Honeyball, who is the lead author of this discovery. Um, she proposed to Sophia to look for water on the moon. And when we got this proposal, even we were surprised, like, wow. Uh, and then we realized, oh, we will have to use this observatory in a different way, the way something we've never done before. So this was essentially a test. Um, and so what happened is on this flight, when we were preparing these observations, we weren't sure we'll be able to get these data. Because, um, you know, unlike uh, other targets like stars and galaxies, that they, are, they, are, they have fixed locations on the sky, moon is moving much faster, and even faster than other solar system bodies that we, we can study with SOFIA. Uh, we were, um, just, you know, we have, uh, syst you, know, process, you know, what would you call, observing scripts in place to study those, uh, those other uh, solar system bodies, but not moon is moving even faster than that. And it's brighter. It's much brighter for our detectors. So when during that flight, when we when we did, made this discovery, we didn't know if our guider's camera would um, be saturated, and we wouldn't even know where on moon we were. We did not know if our instrument would saturate. So uh, I think there was a lot of excitement I heard on the on the on the flight when they started data when they started seeing the data come through. And it was making sense. <laughs> um, of course, they didn't know at the time if they, they had detected water positively. That came later after thorough analysis of the data, uh, of these data. And uh, so, yeah, what was essentially a test led to this discovery. As we mentioned earlier, NASA didn't discover a lot of water. It was really just trace molecules. But they discovered it in an area of the moon where scientists didn't think water could exist. We've known for a while now that the moon does have water in areas that aren't directly lit by the sun. But with SOFIA, NASA was able to find water in the sunlit areas of the moon, which is an incredibly promising discovery for the future of space exploration. Knowing where we can find water is the first step. Uh, but we need to um, know more about this type of water to understand if and how we can use it both for science and exploration. Now, we know there's water in the shadowed craters of the moon. Um, this is different, and we want to study more to find out how it's created, stored, and distributed across the lunar surface. And then we can see if we can harness it for exploration. So yes, we, we are definitely not talk about, talking about puddles of water, but this was, uh, this was quite surprising because we didn't expect this water to survive the harsh conditions on the surface of the moon. So the fact that we are finding it um, um, it's, it's quite exciting, and, and we'll be studying more, this more. I mean, we'll be sending up more flights with Sophia to continue to study more locations uh, on the moon. It, you're, we're not going to be uh, quenching our thirst, uh, so to speak, on this. Um, but, it, but it's the beginning, and, and there's two important aspects uh, to this. Is one, some of the previous detections of ice have been the hydroxyl family, hydroxyl just being an O and an H, right? So... O and 8 or HO, uh, you can get, you know, peroxide or, or you can get H2O2. 
and that's obviously not water. These are different ingredients. Um, now, you can still make rocket fuel to some degree from it. H2O, though, because of the way in the state it is, uh, makes it easier to be used. And again, for humans, the when they then found that it was unambiguously H2O, that was the exciting thing. And as you said, in the sunlit part. So all the other previous parts have been, you know, in shady craters where it's always cold. So of course things can stay. So if you're in an area that is exposed to sun, and so every 13 days, the moon goes through the phases that it would be exposed to light. So a whole lunar phase takes 29 and a half days, but roughly every 13 days, you go, you start to have at least some fraction of daylight, even if it's only for an hour. No atmosphere means when you're in the sunlight on the moon, it's very hot. So you'd expect if there was ice for it to melt away and burn off. So the fact that there was still ice there clearly means a, either A, something is making it or bringing it or sustaining it. Because if there was, a, you know, imagine there was just one layer of ice and no way to make more of it, it would have already burnt off. Clearly that is not the case, which means finding some in the sunlight areas means there is some way the moon is getting more or making more of it. And we'll be back with more Moonshot after this short break. Everyone probably remembers crossing a creek as a kid when you step cautiously from one rock to another. And if you get your balance just right, you come out the other side not drenched and completely soaked. Well, that's kind of what this discovery means in terms of leveraging the moon as a launch pad into deeper space. It, it is. It, it is the gateway. And it, it's, it's because it's, a, it's the next thing to us, really. You know, if you want to put it in perspective, it takes... For most big rockets, it takes three days to get to the moon. If you want to get to Mars, the quickest we can make that is six to seven months. You know, it is a huge jump from the moon to everywhere else. And so if the moon offers these tangible benefits, uh, then it is an easier stepping stone. And you can't just say, hey, let's just build it, do it on a space station or whatever. You need some ground, you need some resources. People looked at asteroids for similar reasons, but asteroids aren't just always there like the moon is. So the moon really becomes this launching point. I I kind of almost think about it as, again, if we go to airplane travel, hopefully, you know, the moon can be that big hub. So you can fly into the hub and then you go to other places. You can go to Mars, you can go to an asteroid, you can go back to Earth. You don't always just want to use the hardest for the standpoint. In this case, that is what the Earth is. So finding water on the moon means the longer term establishment with the Artemis mission so we could do those bigger goals. And speaking of those bigger goals, NASA is planning to return to the moon by 2024, which is only a couple of years away now, and they want to establish a permanent gateway. So you might be wondering what's next. Now that we know that there is water there, especially in the sunlit portions of the moon, what other burning questions do the researchers at NASA need to answer when it comes to examining the resources that exist on the lunar surface? Yeah, so I am not a lunar scientist, but I have heard this, that they would uh, love, you know, they would really like to know what the lunar uh, water cycle looks like, uh, because more we understand about moon, 
uh, not just for exploration, we can start to think about how um, something called exomoons, moons in other planetary systems would be like, um, and just the origin story of our moon and uh, how did the moon come about, how, and if you find other minerals uh, or other things on the moon, that will help us um, kind of put together the greater history of the solar system. So scientifically, that's what we want to know. How did, how did water get to the moon? Um, how, uh, and if you find other minerals and, and molecules, how did they get there? Um, how, how, and so, so it's just always the origin story that, that you're interested in. Obviously, when we talk about, about the moon, there's often, you know, every time we've tried to go to the moon, there seems to be like this like crazy ambitious sort of, you know, timeframes in which, in which things happen. Um, you know, we obviously know how to get there. We've, we've been there before, but the technology is completely different um, these days. Like how feasible is it, do you think, that, that we will get there by 2024? Yeah, you know, it's funny because if you go back historically, a number of presidents, this was Bush, this is Obama, uh, you know, always said, hey, we're going to, you know, the moon will be an eight to 10 year plan. And that was always because at the end of their eight to 10 years, they could take credit for the almost success without the blame for all the cost overruns. Um, Because, you know, the funding always ramped up in the year four to eight rather than the first term of the presidency. Uh, And and, and Donald Trump, when he came in, did say, hey, we don't want to do 2028. We want to do 2024, which everyone was a bit surprised by. That accelerated the time frame. Um, it has been pretty bipartisanly supported to, to ramp up these goals. You know, 2024 is still going to be tough to get humans on the moon. But, you know, NASA has made a huge success when the space launch system, this is their new rocket to the moon, and the Orion capsule, which would be their new ride. Um, in fact, they started assembling it. Um, in Florida, ahead of a, a, a first launch of it, they hope for tentatively October next year. We saw the success with SpaceX recently. So, you know, I think it will be, you know, around five years, probably. You know, I don't think we'll hit 2024, but I think it won't be 2028. I think it'll be somewhere uh, in between. And I think that will be uh, an interesting goal to see if we can make it. Um, I, I think the more ambitious timeline is when we hear people, especially companies like SpaceX, say, hey, we want to do Mars in 2028 or 2030. Mars is such a different hard ball game compared to the moon. You know, the moon, as you said, it gets that technology devolved. We already know how to do it. So it's a good, safe, surprisingly first step to get all of the bugs, all of the kinks, all of the things working before we do on these new ventures that we've never done before. And we'll be back with more Moonshot after this short break. Now, in recent times, we've seen a growing number of countries realise their ambition to have some kind of presence on the moon. Shortly after touching down on the Ocean of Storms, a volcanic plain on the near side of the moon, China's state television showed pictures of yet another homegrown technological breakthrough in space. Chang'e Wu, or Long March 5, is on a historic mission to bring back rock and soil samples from the moon, the first such mission in more than 40 years. 
China has been making their ambition well known. They've sent multiple landers to the moon's surface and have even landed on the far side of the moon, an area which isn't visible from Earth. India have also been sending probes to the moon, although they're yet to actually stick the landing. But when they do, they'll be the fourth country to land on the lunar surface. You know, space is A, become cheaper. You know, we saw last year in 2019, China, India and Israel, all attempts landing on the moon. China nailed their landing. India had a partial success. Israel almost, but again, still pretty good success. You know, I, I always like to put it in perspective. India's mission cost $100 million. The US Apollo program cost $150 billion. You know, that is a huge difference in price. And just to clarify, when Brad says that the Apollo program cost $150 billion, he's talking in today's money, which would be a phenomenal amount to actually make those missions happen. I always like this comparison. The, the movie Gravity, five years ago with Sandra Bullock and George Clooney, cost $120 million. Like, it is cheaper to go into space than make a movie about going into space. You know, it, it's just this comical turn in the cost. So all of these other countries now realize it's not just a huge player. It's not just the U.S. and Russia. It is a different race because it's not even a race anymore. You know, in in the 60s, it was whoever can get to the moon first. Now it's more like a marathon. Who can get to the moon and who can stay at the moon and then use that to go other places? So China wants to, you know, they're rapidly growing their space program. They're kind of quickly becoming the third space superpower. India is not far between them with fourth. They have their own goals. But the private companies as well, with SpaceX, with Blue Origin, with other startups, all of this is now possible for people to send these things. And, And this is where it's going to be different. It's going to be more like an Antarctic scenario where you don't just go there and come out. You have sustained presence. You have your own different scientific goals and uh, technological uh, aims. And hopefully it's done cooperatively, but there is some worries about where that leads to. But as of now, um, it's looking promising, I say, for I think most people to cooperate in space. And all of this lunar activity actually raises some pretty interesting questions about the resources we could find on the surface and who owns them. One key question, will there suddenly be some kind of land grab for all this lunar real estate? A moon grab? Um, pretty much. So, so I always say the race to the moon is back on. So the race to the moon in the 1960s was all about demonstrating um, political, ideological and technological prowess, right? It was a race between the Soviets and the US. And that was why they just wanted to get a human being, a man on the moon. The race to the moon now is all about technology. So it's all about getting robotics to the moon. It's about, for China, they were the first to land on the dark side of the moon, which is an incredibly complex thing to do. Um, But it's all about being able to mine the moon. So we're now seeing the moon not just as uh, a destination, we're seeing it as a resource. That's Cassandra Steer, a senior lecturer at the Australian National University College of Law and also a mission specialist with the ANU's Institute for Space. So I'm a space lawyer. Cassandra says that our perception of the moon has changed now that we're close to realising a vision of having a more permanent presence there. Uh, And that's because we are looking possibly for some um, heavy metals that we can use for um, telephones and computers, things that are in short supply on Earth. But more importantly, it's about being able to mine for um, the kinds of things that would support human life longer term. So the US's gateway project is to have a permanent 
space station orbiting the moon uh, and eventually human habitation on the moon. So the countries and the and the companies as well that are involved in this race uh, are really interested in what we can mine the moon for, what resources we can find there. Uh, how much how much will resources like water affect where uh, countries want to establish uh, you know potential bases? Enormously, actually, water is the most uh, important resource, uh, and so that will that's what the the current. Um, the current missions to go to the moon are really about discovering where are the best places to land um, because you can't just kind of land and then wander around the moon and, and find where to go. It's not like exploring uh, new continents, the, co- the colonialists of a few hundred years ago. Um, it costs too much fuel. It's very difficult to navigate. And so it's much more important to figure out, first of all, where to land um, and then to start establishing um, potential robotics for mining in the long-term human habitation. And so if we know where we can find water, that is absolutely the key driver. Given the, I guess, the importance of um, of this particular discovery um, and, you know, there hopefully will be future um, discoveries that that you can talk about down down the line as, as well, which will support um, everything that's going on with, with Artemis. And there seems to be this, this real, like... I guess like renaissance in um, in in terms of both like space exploration, but also you know research um, in space, um, it, which I guess has exploded along with all of the you know private enterprises etc. Looking um, looking at at space um, as, as someone that is looking for new discoveries um, that that are out there. Like what what excites you about? All of the the discussions and and the, the the talks and everything that's happening like in this moment in time around space. Oh, it's 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 exhilarating, really, for me, and and I'm uh, so immersed in it that sometimes I forget because you're talking. You just ask me the question that makes me so happy and delighted that that's how the public is perceiving it as well. Because we are not, from my point of view, we're not making these discoveries for ourselves. We are also trying to inspire the world, inspire the next generation. We, we want to, when we make these discoveries, it's, it's to enhance human knowledge and our knowledge about the cosmos. But it's also uh, ensuring that um, we use these discoveries to, um, again, build the next mission that we need, but also to inspire the next generation, build the next generation of scientists and engineers and train them. So it's, it's, it's all, it's all, it's all everything together. So for me, all of this is, is extremely um, exhilarating really. Uh, and in my position, um, it's, it's really in some way a perfect position because not only I get to enjoy the scientific discoveries and um, uh, have the honor to help them in, help enable these discoveries, but also then work with the community, both public and scientists, um, to continue to hear their ideas and and continue to hear their excitement and what they would like to see in the future. Um, so uh, yes, that's that, that's how I, I can answer. I I I I think it's this is great and we should promote it. We should we should continue to talk about this. Um, you know, folks like you in the media and uh, um, and you know especially. Chris, in, in some in these times, right? We are uh, we have challenges with the pandemic, um, and and other challenges around the world. Um, this is what this 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 gives hope. You know, discoveries are, are very inspiring. They're very neutral. It's 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 um, it's uh, so so yeah. Um, that's that's what I can say about that. 
Now, this discovery of water on the sunlit section of the moon raises a bunch of interesting questions for me around uh, resources and who owns what when we do eventually establish bases on the moon's surface. So we're going to explore that more in the next episode of Moonshot, which will be out in the first week of January. So make sure you're subscribed so you're amongst the first to get that episode when it drops. I also want to say a big thanks to Brad Tucker and Cassandra Steer from ANU, and of course, Nassim Rangwala from NASA for making the time to chat about this amazing discovery. There was a bunch of other interesting questions that we didn't get to include in this episode of the show, but you will be able to get those if you become a Patreon supporter. You can join at patreon.com slash moonshot. Not only will you get bonus episodes of the podcast, uh, but you'll get an ad-free version of the show. And you'll get stickers and other merch depending on which membership tier you select. But there's something for everyone, so head across to patreon.com slash moonshot. Um, Those bonus questions will be up in the next few weeks. Moonshot is a production of Lawson Media and is hosted by me, Christopher Lawson, and also Andrew Moon. Our artwork comes from the talented Andrew Millist, and our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you're enjoying the show, then consider supporting us on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash moonshot. You can also find old episodes of the podcast over at moonshot.audio, and you can follow us on social media. Just search for Moonshot Pod. We'll be back after New Year's with our next episode. Thanks for listening.